Good morning, Jubilee. Forgive my voice. I hope it holds out. Last Sunday in this book of Ephesians. Next Sunday, we hear from our brother Brian Kite as our team prepares to take Jubilee North in a church plant. Two weeks is Palm Sunday. Three weeks is Easter, celebrating the resurrection. In four weeks, we hear from Blake Wahlberg as he and Melody tell us a little bit about the work in Indonesia as they prepare to return. And then Pastor Lewis will take us, Lord willing, into the book of Ecclesiastes. That is what's to come. But today, we come to Ephesians and this last section. And as we come to this last section, I want us to consider that false teaching hurts people. Wrong thinking leads to wrong living. And there is no more pernicious false teaching, no more prevalent deceitful false teaching in the world than the prosperity gospel. And it has been exported from our country to countries around the world. The lie that God wants you wealthy, healthy, happy at all times. And oh, by the way, if you're not, it's owing to your lack of faith, which creates a church Ponzi scheme. You familiar with the Ponzi scheme? Right? You just give me your money, invest it with me, I'll give you an incredible rate of return, and it keeps working as long as people keep putting money in the system. And the guy who starts it gets rich, and when it finally collapses and falls apart, all the last people to put their money in lose out. In the prosperity gospel system, the pastor always gets rich, Right? Because in order to have faith in God, you've got to sow a seed of faith. You've got to give money. Give money, give money, give money. And so around the world, there are pastors who are uh, getting rich on the backs of their people, teaching this kind of prosperity teaching, including maybe the most famous Joel Osteen in Houston, Texas, written books like Every Day is Friday, your best life now, you think, ha ha, so funny, except that these sell millions of copies, and everybody in this room knows people that are affected or under the influence of Joel Osteen and his ilk. Go on the list of podcasts or, or downloads, and they're always right near the top. Say, okay, what does this have to do with Ephesians? When Paul concludes our letter this morning, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, he refers to himself with a unique title, a title we would not expect. And it's the title, An Ambassador in Chains. Do you see that? Verse 20, I am an ambassador in chains. Which leads us to the obvious question. If God is sovereign and God is good, if God is a loving, kind Father, 
and he rules and reigns, has all ability, and is working out his purpose in the world, why would his chosen servant, Paul, be writing from prison? Doesn't feel like it's his best life now. Why not? Why not? Why was it hard for Paul? We read in 2 Corinthians of the trial after trial after trial that he faced. We read in the book of Acts as he's going and planting the church and God is establishing the church where it has never been, in Corinth, in Athens, and here in this great city, Ephesus. Remember when we began this book, we said Ephesus was the third great city of the Roman Empire. It it faced west Over that beautiful sea, every night the sun set, this radiant sunset into the city of Ephesus. It had one of the great wonders of the world. And as we saw in the book of Acts, this city was absolutely turned upside down. The false worship of the false temple was was threatened to be completely undone. Why? Because Paul and a few of his ilk came with the message of the gospel, and it changed everything. But it wasn't a message that said, I've come to tell you about your best life now. It was one who came with a message that said, I've come to tell you about a message of your best life forever, which includes joy inexpressible and full of glory now, but not because life is always easy. But in the midst of the challenges and the pain and the trials, to know that our Father has a plan and the true teaching of the true Word of God is that there are many trials and tribulations in this world. Jesus promised, you will face many tribulations. He didn't say, Only believe and you will be healthy and wealthy. He said, you will face many tribulations. But then he said two words. Anybody remember them? Take heart. Take heart. Why? Because I, Jesus said, have overcome the world. And so when we read Psalm 69, David's anointed, God's anointed king, David, and we hear his lament, and we hear his pain, and we hear his trials, and we hear him cast down, and we hear him faced with great opposition. We hear something we can relate to, something we can understand. And as Brother Dave said, it's not just the experience of David, but it is echoed in the experience of the life of our Savior, who said, you will face these same trials if you follow me. So Jubilee, I'm here to invite you to follow Jesus. It's the greatest pathway in the world. It's not the wide road, and it's not the easy road, but it's the best road. You know why? Because it leads to life. That's why when we got to the end of the book of John, he said, written these things that you might believe, and in believing, so have life. And this short little scrawny guy sitting in prison who seemed so insignificant didn't seem like much. But oh my, the world was turned upside down because it wasn't just David 
who went through many tribulations. It wasn't just Jesus that went through many tribulations. Brother Paul here has gone through many tribulations, and so he ends this book by saying, I am an ambassador in chains, and yet he is undaunted. He is resolute. Remember we said last week, he said, these are light and momentary afflictions that are working out for us an eternal weight of glory. God had allowed him a vision of what the third heaven was like, of what heaven itself will be like, of what eternal life will be like. And he came back to tell us, this is something, but it really ain't anything. Because what's to come, that's something. Not about a nice car now, but glory with Jesus forever. So he ends this book addressing us as an ambassador in chains. One more thought, and then we dig in. A lot of building been going around our city. Each time you see a, a big building go up, there's inevitably a crane, right? And that crane's rooted in the ground, and up on that crane, there's the really short side, and there's the really long side, right? The long side has the rope. It's got the pulley through which everything is hoisted and all the bricks, all the wood, all the supplies are, are carried on, but it's sticking way out there. And it would fall over, except the short side has what? It's got a lot of weight, lots of weight to balance it out so that that crane doesn't go falling over. We get to the end of Ephesians, and we see the life of Paul and the life that he's inviting us into, and it's a life of trusting Jesus and venturing out like the long end of a train. Come on, Jubilee. Come on, brothers. Come on, sisters. Follow me as I follow Christ. Come on into the pathways of tribulation. Come on into some difficulties. Come on into some pain. Come on into some tears. But, but, it's not where he began, was it? As we come to the end of this book, we must be reminded he started by putting a whole lot of weight on the other side, didn't he? You remember? In Ephesians 1, began 3 through 14, that first long sentence where he said over a dozen times that we are in Christ. We are united to the ruling, reigning king we heard about last week who's going to destroy every one of his enemies, and he's got us with a chain wrapped around you and him forever. And he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He chose us, the Father did, in Christ before the foundation of the world. In love, the Father predestined every one of you who is in Christ for adoption as sons and daughters through Christ. And blessing and promise after blessing and promise is laid out for us there. Then he ends chapter 1 by praying, oh God, give them eyes to see how great are your promises and your power for them. Then Ephesians 2, what does it do? It gives us the gospel. We were dead. We were rebels. We were following Satan. We were among the sons of disobedience. We were children of wrath, those to whom God was going to punish. What can a dead person do for themselves? Not one thing, Chad Tim. 
Not one thing. And so, Ephesians 2, verse 4, begins with the best two words in the whole book. Anybody remember what they are? But God. Anybody remember what 2-4 begins with? Okay, I need it one more time, because these are really the two best book, words in the, Bible, in, the, in the book. Ephesians 2, verse 4 begins with? But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, when we were dead, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, we have been saved through faith. All of God's goodness poured out to us through Christ. Mercy that forgives our sins, expunges our debt, cleanses us of all of our unrighteousness, and grace that says, no, not only are you forgiven, but you are chosen, you are accepted, you are loved, you are adopted, and you are united to my Son forever, which is way better than a, than a car that's going to get ratty and old in a few years. Amen? Way better than a house you're going to have to leave behind after you die. He stacked weight after weight after weight after weight after weight. But as he did, he reminded us of this long journey and the warfare we're going to be in and the fight we're going to fight. So when chapter 3, verse 1 begins, he says, I am writing to you as a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. I'm not living my best life now. I'm writing from prison for your sake. I'm going through trials for your sake because I've experienced the joy and it's so good that I want you to experience it. And so he says, come on, live this way. Go to Turkey and share the joy of Jesus. Go to Indonesia, leave behind your family and share the joy of Jesus. Go to Cameroon and start a church or have children. Welcome them into your home and share with them the love of Jesus. Or go talk to your neighbor. Have them over for dinner and share with them the love of Jesus because this joy is real and yet it is not our best life now. Ephesians 4 begins with Paul reminding us again who he is. I, therefore, next word, a prisoner for the Lord. This is how Paul describes himself. And this is how Paul now concludes his letter. 2 Corinthians 5, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. And now he ends by saying, I am an ambassador in chains. We're in a fight. He talked to us about the armor the last two weeks, these six pieces of armor in every circumstance We heard last week, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Paul knows about this. He's been in prison. He's in prison now. He's faced accusation. And friend, to follow Jesus means to walk in this way. Thus, we need to be equipped for this battle. So in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Keep that word all in your mind, because now we're about to get into it. Look with me, that verse I just quoted, verse 16, as it leads us into the end of the chapter. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish 
all the flaming darts of the evil one and take up the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, we're about to hear the same word four times in one verse. And he's going to call us to an action. If all of this is true, if life is hard, if we're going to encounter suffering, if we're going to be around others who are experiencing pain and suffering, we very quickly will become overwhelmed unless we learn the the pattern of life that he calls us to in this next verse. This is the pattern of life he's calling us to. When we are threatened to be undone or overwhelmed or consumed or stressed out, he calls us to this. We're going to hear the word all four times. Verse 18, with all that armor on, what are we to do? Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. It's been said that prayerlessness is a declaration of independence from God. And so, Jubilee, it is so easy in America to grow prayerless. Amen? Jubilee, it is so easy in America to grow prayerless. Amen? Do you know the schemes of the devil? Oh, does he want us to grow prayerless? Got health? What do I need to pray for? Got health care when I get sick? What do I need to pray for? Plenty of amusements, plenty of channels, plenty of streaming options, plenty of music, lots of good food. What do I need to pray for? There's new restaurants to try, new drink at Starbucks to taste. We've got a home. It's not ready to go on HGTV, but it's nice, works, roof doesn't leak. What do I need to pray for? Going on vacation, it's going to be great. What do I need to pray for? There's fun activities coming up. What do I need to pray for? And Paul says, believer, loved one, we need to be praying at all times in the Spirit, morning noon, night. That's the first all, praying at all times in the Spirit. What does this mean? It means that we live conscious that life is hard, and we need God, and He's given us the helper, the Holy Spirit within us, and the Holy Spirit will help us pray. Which means what? How do we pray in the Spirit? Well, He's the Holy Spirit. That means we confess sin when we stumble and fall and say, God, wash me, cleanse me, just like David was praying in Psalm 69. But then it also means we don't always know what to say when we're praying. We don't always know what to pray when we're praying. But praying in the Spirit means knowing that God is with us. Romans 8 reminds us, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts and minds knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Even as we're praying imperfectly, the Spirit is praying alongside us according to the will of God. But it's just this daily, hourly dependence that says, God, I need you. I need you. I am weak. You are strong. Help, help, help. 
bing, hey, tragedy just hit, what do I do? I pray in the Spirit, God have mercy. God help my sister. God help my brother. God help this family. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. These words mean praying about need. Praying where there's some need, some lack, some hurting thing going on. He's saying this is going to happen in this world. We're not in glory yet. We are headed there. And we won't be doing a lot of prayer and supplication there. Amen? I hope you know that. I hope you're reminded of that. But right now, with all prayer and supplication, we're getting hit by stuff all the time. He says, to that end, pray with all prayer and supplication. Every need drives us to our Father, reminds us that we have a good Father who loves us, who's for us, who, who invites us, and He says, cast all your cares on me. Why? Because I care for you. The God who made heaven and earth says, I care for you. Cast your cares on me. They're too heavy for you. They're not too heavy for me. Cast them on me. Cast them on me. Cast them on me. So what does this mean practically in real life? Someone comes up to you. They share something really hard. The religious cliche is to respond, say what? I'll pray for you. Percentage-wise, how often do we do that? Not nearly as often as we would like right? I would encourage you, stop what you're doing, go to work right there. You, them, the Father, by the Spirit, pray right there. Cast your cares on Him. It's not a law, not a rule. Just as quickly as you can, go to prayer. Cast the care on Him. Otherwise, we get overwhelmed quickly. At least I do by the many things that come at us. Praying at all times in the Spirit. Praying with all prayer and supplication. Third, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance. What does that mean? It means that Paul has said multiple times in this book, we live in an evil age. We live in evil days. We must walk as wise, not as unwise, he said in chapter 5. These days are evil. There's all kinds of things that would threaten to undo our faith. So this little two-word exhortation is keep alert. Do you hear it? He said keep alert. Do you hear it? He says, keep alert. Do you hear it? He says, keep alert. Whoa, what happened? We have to stay ready, right? We have to stay aware. Does this mean never rest? It does not. Our God invites us to rest. Our God invites us to refresh. Our God invites us to be renewed. What does it mean, keep alert from? The schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Remember this whole section we've been in? But we must put on the whole armor of God that we may be able to stand. We may be able to stand. We may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, stand firm, right? And how do we stand firm? Keep alert, knowing that the enemy of our soul would love to lull us to sleep on a bed of worldliness. Forget about all this Jesus radicalness. In past generations, it was called enthusiasm. 
If you were too serious about Jesus, you were an enthusiast. In other generations, you're a radical, or you're one of those born-againers. You're one of those Christians who are really a little too excited about it. That's what Paul calls us to. That's what Jesus calls us to, which is keep alert with all perseverance. Persevering, finishing, finishing the race. Not just you individually, but us collectively. Jubilee, let us keep alert that we might finish the race. We might complete our journey. Which means we rest, which means we encourage, which means we love, which means we comfort, which means we care. All the while, not drifting off to sleep on the bed of ignoring Jesus and growing to love the world. Last all, see it there, at the end of verse 18, after keep alert with all perseverance, he says, making supplication for all the saints. Making supplication for all the saints. I don't know if you know this, one of the reasons we encourage you to become a member at Jubilee One of the reasons we have membership at Jubilee is so our elders know very specifically who it is we are going to give an account to God for. And so, if you are a member at Jubilee, at every elders' meeting when we gather, we pray for every member consecutively through the alphabet. I love that. It's awesome. It's not everything. It's not, you know, amazing. It's just a regular way of praying for all the saints in this body. So if you're a member at Jubilee, you are regularly prayed for by your elders. And I want to encourage all of us, be familiar with our membership directory. It is a prayer list, praying for all the saints in this body, because as Pastor Dave mentioned, all kinds of things going on in this body all the time. Good, bad, exciting, hard. And we are called Jubilee, this last exhortation, from the book of Ephesians. Make supplication for all the saints. When we forget about the battle, when Satan has blinded our eyes to forget about the battle, then we get prayerless. We don't pray for one another. This is what happened in the garden. Remember? Jesus saw things clearly. The disciples clearly didn't. What's the big deal? Why do we need to pray? I'm tired. I'm going to sleep. Pray, 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 Jesus said. All right, we'll pray. And off to sleep. And this is the tension we feel, right? Jesus is calling us, saying, we're in a fight. We're in a battle. We're in a race. Make supplication for all the saints. There's no guarantee everyone in this room is going to finish the race loving Jesus. No guarantee at all. No guarantee that all of our children are going to love Jesus. No guarantee that... None of us are going to make shipwreck of our faith. No guarantee that, that, that people are going to burn out or fry out or quit or whatever. And so we pray, we pray and say, God, please help making supplication for all the saints. Verse 19, and also for me. Paul says, make supplication for all the saints and also for me. Why does he say this? Why does he say this? Paul, you're Superman. You're super apostle. You've seen heaven. Kidding me? Jesus revealed himself to you. 
Like, you've turned cities upside down. Why do you need prayer? You're like autopilot, Paul. What's the big deal? Oh, friends, this is one of Satan's schemes. It is easy to think that the work of the ministry is easy. It is easy to think that proclamation of the gospel is automatic. Paul knows very well his weakness, and he knows very well if anything good happens in his ministry, it's because the Spirit of God caused it to happen. And so look at verse 19 and 20 and hear Paul's prayer request. This is the end of the book, and he says, pray with all these people and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly, even as I ought to speak. Paul knows this is not autopilot. This is war. It is not automatic that he's going to declare the gospel. It's not automatic that he's going to make much of Jesus. It's not automatic that the gospel is going to come not just in words but in power. So he says, pray for me. Pray for me. And so, Jubilee, let me encourage you. Pray for your pastors, for we are weak as well. Every Sunday, the declaration of the Word of God is a battle. It is a war. Brother, going to plant a church with his team, not going on vacation. They're going to war. When Jonathan, Brian, go on behalf of TLI to the nation's teaching pastors, they're not going to drink drinks with little umbrellas in them. They're going to teach the Word of God, and they're going to battle. When you go to share the gospel with your unbelieving friend or neighbor or coworker, you know what it's like to get that pit in your stomach, to get that conversation and going in your head, I don't want to do this, don't do this, I don't want to do this. Suddenly you're sick, you're in turmoil, there's, there's tension, there's anxiety, there's all kinds of things going on. You go, what is going on? We need to follow this model and say, pray for me. Pray for me. If Paul the Apostle needed prayer for boldness, oh boy, how much more do we? So, I want to apply this one and say, pray for me. Thirteen years preaching minister, I can tell you, it's not easier. It's a battle. It's a fight. And every time you get to share in the Word of God or seeking to preach the gospel, it's a fight. And each of us know that we're not on autopilot. Each of us know we are so weak in this battle. Paul, in fact, ended 2 Corinthians by talking about his weakness. He said, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this weakness in my life, about this thorn in the flesh that it should leave me. And God didn't say, all right, awesome, let me give you your best life now. Not what he did. What did he say? He said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Paul then said, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, that the power of Christ may be manifest in me. 
Jubilee, God's math equation is super omnipotent, powerful God plus weak, stumbling, frail, weak vessel equal glory to God and God working in power. Amen? That's the math equation. And so when you say to God, God, I'm too weak, join the parade of Christian history. Moses said, I got, you've got the wrong guy, clearly. Joshua said, I can't fill Moses' shoes. We look at David and what a, what a train wreck of hot mess he is. Person after person after person. Certainly the Holy Spirit wouldn't fill the mouth of a 16-year-old girl who's suddenly pregnant. But he does. But he does. Jubilee, what do we do with this reality? The reality that Ephesians ends with is that the sovereign God is our Father. He loves us, and He loved Paul, and He loves you. And you ask, why then, God, this painful road? Why then the disappointments? Why then the waiting? David in Psalm 69 was waiting, waiting. How long, how long, how long? Why not our best life now? Why do the wicked prosper? All kind of people that give no glory at all to Jesus, and they're doing great. They're on easy street. God, why is this the way that it is? Because the Father, His goal is not your every moment pleasure and every moment ease. He did design pleasure And he has a future of pleasure and ease for you, and he will give you pleasures now. But it will be mingled with trials and tears and pain and struggle. Why? He will call you to work hard, and then he will give you Sabbath rest, and they will be mingled together. We say, why? Jubilee, because it's through our trials that our faith is refined. It's through the pain and through the tears that when Satan says, Job only follows you because you've made his life easy, that God can say, nah, not the case. This one, and this one, and this one, and this one, and this one. Don't follow me because they've experienced their best life now. They followed me because my son is worthy, and I am with them, and they are my son, and they are my daughter, and I have adopted them, and they're going to live with me forever, and they're putting their hope in me, the unseen God, now, and they will do so forever. And that faith shows God to be a great God, because when the world looks at our life, they should say, it doesn't add up. Everything you've gone through, all the pain and trial, why do you have joy? Why do you keep following Jesus? And we keep looking to Him, covered in this armor, praying for one another, knowing that our imperfect, stammering faith will declare, both individually and corporately, that Jesus is better. That Jubilee Community Church will declare to every Ruler and authority, the manifold wisdom of God. Jesus is better. He's better than getting to the final four. He's better than becoming a millionaire. He's better than having the greatest Instagram account ever. He's better. 
And that's not clear to the world. But we want it to be clear from our lives. Pastor Andy Davis wrote this. Consider this hypothetical scenario. Imagine you just won the most extraordinary sweepstakes prize ever, but it came through supernatural means. Let's call it the Faustian Travel Agency, owned and operated by a Mr. Mephistopheles. The prize is a two-week, all-expense-paid trip anywhere in the world. You'll stay at the most expensive five-star hotels, eat the highest quality food cooked by the best chefs in the world. You'll see the most spectacular scenery, drive the most expensive cars, and wear a whole new wardrobe specifically tailored for you. The trip will have the best of everything and will cater to your every whim. But there's a catch. You would have to agree to be continually discontent at every moment of the trip. Would you do it? Two weeks of constant discontentment in the most luxurious setting possible. For many people, I think the answer might be pretty clear. No way. Why would I want to be miserable for two straight weeks? Actually, though, he continues, we see many of the world's most elite people essentially living out this kind of tragedy in real life. Famous athletes and movie stars living in spectacular mansions on private estates on rocky coastlines with architectural plans that maximize the view of the sunrise or the sunset over the ocean. And yet tragically discontent going from divorce to divorce, addicted to drugs, bored, even suicidal. Conversely, suppose a different offer were made to you. This one, by your heavenly Father, he offers a painful trial of suffering. You'll be publicly beaten, imprisoned in a gloomy dungeon, with your feet in stocks. You'll be deprived of food, water, medical care, and even light. Surrounding you will be other suffering prisoners, the stench of human bodily fluids and the kind of despair that comes when the end of your agony isn't in sight. But you'll also be filled with such a supernatural contentment through God's presence that you'll later remember it as one of the sweetest times of your life. It will actually cause you to sing with joy and you'll have the privilege of leading a whole family to faith in Christ. See Acts 16, Paul and the Philippian jailer. Which offer would you take? If you're a Christian, it's possible you would choose the second experience despite its high cost, and if so, you probably agree that contentment is the greatest state of inner well-being one could ever have in this world. So it was with Jesus, so it is with Paul, so it is to be with us. Verse 21, we come to the end. So that you may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose. Christian community was real, and Paul didn't just post on Facebook. He didn't just send out a text. He said, no, I'm going to send you the beloved brother so that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. We see throughout the New Testament the priority of relationships. 
community built together, all these different relationships. Remember that Romans 16, a whole chapter, is all about relationships of people Paul knew and loved and cared for, even though he had never been in Rome. How does the church build? It builds as we love one another, care for one another, and then one goes, and then other goes and join them, and then another comes back and reports how are they doing, and together we live this thing out. And so it was for this church that Paul loved so much in Ephesus, so much so that he was sending Tychicus on report. Pastor Dan this summer is going to go on behalf with Lori to some of our missionaries, visit some of our missionaries, that they may know how we're doing and that we may hear how they're doing. We just want to keep doing that all kind of ways. And all of you guys are about that in different ways. We want to keep doing that. And then the last two verses. Pastor Lou mentioned them before. Don't miss the key word of connection. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith. Key word is next. What's the next word? Look at it. You got to look at your word. Verse 23, peace be to the brothers and love with faith. What's the next word? A little louder. What's the next word? From. Where does our peace come from? Where does our love come from? It's not just generic. It's not just a, 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 an empty word of, of blessing. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith that comes from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. And so he blesses them with the peace of God and the love that comes from God as he closes the letter and then says, grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ. In the midst of the trials, in the midst of the pain, in the midst of your weakness, with love incorruptible. Won't be corrupted. Won't disappoint. Won't end. But will finish the race. John Newton said this, he believes and feels his own he who believes and feels his own weakness and unworthiness and lives upon the grace and pardoning love of this Lord. This gives him a habitual tenderness and gentleness of spirit. Humble under a sense of much forgiveness to himself, he is the one that finds it easy to forgive others. So Paul knew what it was to be forgiven much. So John Newton knew what it was to be forgiven much. And so we know what it is to be forgiven much and therefore to love with love incorruptible. Pastor Dan.